God has rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son he loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at this Son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from His perspective. You received Christ Jesus, the Master. Now live Him. You're deeply rooted in Him. Right. Trinity Church, how you doing? Yeah, you're singing well. I loved listening to you this morning. Great job. We're really glad you're here. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor at Trinity Church. It's a privilege to get to be with you today. I'm looking out over our high school students. Eyes are a little bit half-masked. Most of them were up all night on Friday with our fall nighter. So I'm going to give you permission in advance. If the person next to you is starting to lose it, just a gentle shot to the ribs, okay? Just a, a gentle, just keep them perky and awake, and, and that'll be great. We're glad you're here this morning. Glad the rest of you are here as well. You are with us today on week three of a new series called Rooted. We're walking through the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible today, you could actually open it. We'll find our way there. We'll be in Colossians 1. We've been in Colossians 1 the last two weeks. We'll kind of finish that chapter and move forward. If you don't know where Colossians is, remember, go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and you'll find your way there uh, today. Thank you guys in the booth. Last service, I forgot to mention our Start Here uh, booth is out there today. Start Here is basically, if you're relatively new to Trinity and you just wanted a chance to meet uh, myself or some of our other pastors, that's where we're going to be, our ministry directors. It, it's right out on the plaza. You can't miss it. It has a sign that looks just like that. We'd love to interact with you, answer any questions you have, and just get to know you. Say hello. So if you'd like to see us out there today, we'd love that. If you look in your Trinity this week, you have some notes that look like this as well. If you want to have those out ready to go. Uh, they'll help you not only track through the message, but then if you know, if you're in a home group, these are your prompts for your conversation. Most of our groups have started back by now, and uh, I've just heard some great things already. Our group began this last week, and just great to see everyone. We've, it felt like a long three months of not being together over the summer, and now we're able to get reconnected, so excited for that. And remember, what our home groups are, small groups generally, we're always about learning about God, being able to talk about Jesus together in context, that discussion factor is high. But you know, at the end of the day, we're really trying to develop relationships, trying to do the one another's. Remember back in August, we were doing that series, Where You Fit at Trinity. And, and that's what we, we taught from. We're two of the one another's because that goal is, is we really need to have community. We need to have a group of people we're doing life with and people who would just be supportive, praying for us and loving us well. So just know that's a real value for us here at Trinity Church. I'm really glad you're here today. We're, we're back in this series now as we're walking through. What we're learning is, is that Paul is writing to a group of people that are Jesus followers, but he's never met them. That's a little bit different for him. Usually he's writing letters back to churches that he helped establish. So this church has been established by a friend of his, someone he led to the Lord, a guy named Epaphras, and he's writing to them and he's really giving them two really big ideas. And the first one is he's helping them understand the context of the gospel primarily, who are they and who is Jesus? You really have to understand those two things. It's not as though those are incredibly complex ideas. They're relatively simple, but it's really important you start there. 
Who am I? Who is Jesus? But then out of understanding the context for the gospel, the rest of the book of Colossians is all about how do you live in the gospel? Having received it, responded to this free invitation from God to be rightly related to him through his son, how do you, between now and heaven, how do you walk that way? And we're going to see more of that as we get into this book. But I'm really excited that you're here today as we get to dive in. What we're going to look at today is we're going to actually see this, this phrase a couple times that we see in other parts of Scripture too called the mystery of God. And so that relates to our now what idea. It's in your notes and on the screen. Now that God has made known the mystery of Jesus to you, make him known to those in your world. And we'll identify and, and uh, define that term in just a second. So let's dive in today. Number one in your notes, the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our passage today has a couple of different phrases that if you have um, been around in maybe a church setting or in a small group or you've memorized scripture, these are probably two of the verses you're going to see today that are, are familiar. And this is one of them. The mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're in Colossians 1 verse 24. It says, now, Paul writing, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people." To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's, let's take this apart a little bit. Here, let's remind ourselves, if you're just new with us today, this, this, uh, we got an overview a couple of weeks ago about this book, and, and three big ideas are simply who's the author, who's the audience, and what's the occasion? Why is Paul writing? We've already said it's not just Paul, the apostle, but it's where he's writing from. He's writing from a Roman jail, and we call Colossians one of what we call the prison epistles because they were written from prison. So Paul's writing in a prison cell, and he's writing this letter, and secondly, the audience, to a group of people he's never met yet, but he has a concern. Remember that Epaphras, one of the people he's led to the Lord, went back to his own people. That's, that's how the church was planted. He heard this great news from what Paul had taught in Ephesus, when I think we said about that distance, about 100, 120 miles, went to, um, back to his home in Colossae and wanted to share this great news with a group of people who had never heard of who Jesus was. So Paul is wanting to let them know some things, and then the occasion was what really kind of got to Paul was not only his, his joy about the way they'd responded to the gospel, but his concern. His concern that they were moving away from Jesus' prime, Jesus' central, Jesus alone. And, and so we talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's kind of the, the reason and the audience and the, the author of this book of Colossians. And just by reviewing that, it helps us a little bit understand a couple things as we move forward, even as we're looking at things today. I told you also a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about letters, and I, I brought you a letter, I brought it back today, a letter that Joanna wrote me when we were dating. It's postmarked July 29th, 1991. That goes way back, way back. And, um, and I told you about just the idea of when you understand the context of the letter, she'd written it to me from here. Uh, we grew up in Ukaipa, and I was serving overseas in Germany in a, a summer mission uh, trip. And that was the context, but I didn't share with you any of the stuff of the letter, and that's what I wanted to do today, some really juicy stuff. Um, 
And, uh, and, and I did say in advance, I got her permission before I share any of this stuff. I already asked her and made sure it was okay. No, it was stuff like this. It's what you'd expect from a personal letter. It was things like, hey, um, here's how things are going with my family. These are some friends I'm connecting with over the summer. Remember, we were gone from or apart from each other almost three months. So a lot of stuff happens in that time. She, um, she let me know in the letter as well about things that were going on in her schedule s- since she'd written the last time. And then finally, probably the most important piece of information, she went to see a movie that premiered that summer, What About Bob, right? <laughs> I mean, we're talking some great films, right? So, so those were the things. And here's what her letter was. It was exactly what you would expect. It was personal, written from one person to another, and it contained personal information. What I want you to see today is sometimes we can read the book of Colossians, and we can get into all of the theology, which is much, in any book in the New Testament, but, but what we can do is we can lose perspective and forget a real guy named Paul, under the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wrote a real letter to a group of believers in a city named Colossae. So part of the way that you would expect a letter to be written is that it would include personal information. It would include things about himself that he wanted to communicate. So just as Paul began very personally the very opening part of the chapter when he was saying, this is the kind of stuff I pray for you. I am praying for you about these kinds of issues. Now Paul's gonna get really personal again and share specific things he's contending for, he's, he's moving out for, but as well as things he's concerned about. He's gonna at least hint at that this week. He begins by using two words that we rarely see ever matched next to each other, the words rejoice and suffering. Look how he begins. I rejoice in what I am suffering. We, we have to keep in mind that the reason, and he goes on to say this, the reason why Paul's in jail, he hasn't murdered anybody. Right? He's not in jail because he'd done something wrong. He's in jail because he was saying to people all over the world, Jesus came, the one-of-a-kind son of God, and he came to the whole world. Not just God's unique people, the Jews, he came to all of the world. And, and for that, Jewish leaders were really upset and frustrated, thought he was speaking blasphemous words, put him in jail, and ultimately this led him into a path of being on trial with actually the, the world power of the day, Rome. So so Paul's in prison literally because he's been bringing this great news to people who are non-Jews. Watch this. The people who were living in Colossae. They were that group of people. Like many of us today would be like, yeah, I'm not a part of that unique people that God has designated, yet the gospel has come to me. So he's saying to them that this is why I am suffering. I'm in a situation that's very challenging. I'm not able to be and do what I would want to do. But in the midst of it, I rejoice. And, and what Paul's really doing is he's bringing this idea back. He wants these Colossian believers to understand out front what they're walking into. One thing I love about the Bible is that there's no fine print. Now, for some of us, our eyes are going bad and everything looks like fine print to you. So I can't help that. But basically what I mean is this, is that it's not like a contract, right? Sometimes you read a contract and a big 20 font letters is what's great about the contract. But down here in seven font is the problem with the contract. Like, this is really what this is going to cost you. And, and this is what's great about the Bible. Paul is saying from the beginning, you've responded to this gospel, but be aware, not just me, but even our ultimate, who we are all following in Jesus, Jesus suffered. Why would we think that as his followers, suffering shouldn't come to us? So he's illuminating that idea so they wouldn't be caught off guard. And the great news is Jesus did the same thing. 
On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus is spending intense time with these now 11 disciples. Judas, by the time I read this, has already left. He's talking to this, this group of 11 men, and he's saying to them, I want you to know what's coming. And look at these words. They couldn't be more upfront and blunt from John 16, I have told you these things so that in me, in me, I love the songs we've been singing today, everything I need is found in you. In me, you may have peace. In this world, you will. It doesn't say you may have trouble. You will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. So Jesus is really clear, as is Paul, to let us know, Paul led in the church at Colossae, letting us know today that suffering is a part of this relationship, part of this walk with Jesus, but it's worth it. That's why Paul can say, I rejoice in what I'm suffering. He goes on to write that becoming a servant to Jesus's body, a servant to the church, is based on a commission or based on a calling that he's received from God. And he was appointed to present the word of God to them in all of its fullness, he goes on to explain what he means by that statement, the fact that a mystery that had been concealed or hidden for ages and generations has now been disclosed, illuminated for God's people. Now, if you were here with us a couple of years ago, when I first came to Trinity, we began in the book of Ephesians. And you remember we had the whole football motif. And so if you were here kind of pushing the ball down the field with us through that book, you would remember in chapters two and three, there's a whole big discussion about this powerful thing that had not been understood until Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, and ascended. After that, then things began to make sense. Jesus came to be the savior of the whole world uniting Jews and Gentiles into a brand new thing, the body of Christ. So the same language was used back in Ephesians when we walked that through. The definition of a biblical mystery is not something that is, quote, mysterious. And what I mean by that, not something so immensely deep that only a few can understand it. That's not the biblical notion of the word. Instead, it's something that had not been previously revealed, but now that it has... The mystery is meant to be known and meant to be engaged. Look back from our study in Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 4. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. In your notes, let's define the term. The Greek word mysterion is a truth beforehand hidden from human knowledge or understanding, but now disclosed by the revelation of God. Beforehand hidden, but now disclosed by the revelation of God. So what Paul is saying is the mystery of God, people did not understand until the mystery showed up. Remember what it says, John 1, he came and he, he, he demonstrated, he showed us what God was like. We quoted John 1 last week. He is the exact representation of God. He is God. So Jesus came and he discloses, he, he reveals what had previously not been understood. Now, we look back and we realize all throughout what we call the former covenant, the Old Testament, there is all kinds of not just hints, but really specific ideas. Messiah is coming and it's going to be like this. Jesus fulfilled every single one of those prophecies and yet within it, still when he came, it was a shock. 
Still, when he came, it was confusing. What did he, what did, who is he and what did he come to do? But now on the other side of, of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Paul writes with clarity and says, this is what God did. This is what God has done for us so that we might be saved. One commentator put it this way. He says, to sum up, we may say that the mystery of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other, with each other through the union of both with Christ. See then what I would almost say is the textbook definition of the mystery of Jesus that Paul writes here to the Colossians. He says this powerful phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, we said a couple of weeks ago, and we'll talk more about this even next week, how often Paul uses the language you being in Christ. He's writing to his audience and he's saying, you are in Christ now that you put your faith in him. Paul now reverses the idea of Christ in you. This is much more seldom throughout the New Testament than the other phrase, but see the power of it. This is what he's saying. This is how the mystery plays out. His spirit, the spirit of Jesus, takes up residence in you when you respond to his invitation in the gospel. And as a result, now you have the hope, you have the confidence. Remember we said biblically, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a strong confidence and a surety in the fact of being with him in his majesty, in his glory forever. It was a powerful promise then, it's a powerful promise today for us. And here's the wild thing about this mystery that according to the biblical definition of the word, something previously concealed, previously hidden, but now revealed, it's no longer hidden. It's no longer veiled. Even if you haven't responded to the message, this invitation, but you at least understand it and heard it. Here's our great ache and what moves us to be involved globally and locally is that there are people all over the world who've never even heard this. I know when you think on a global level, I think our minds grasp that. We get the idea there are people all over the world who have no shred of a biblical uh, revelation, no Bible in their hands to understand what God has done for them. But here's the thing that I think is for some of us harder to understand, but equally true. There are people here in Southern California in your relational world who if you were to say, have you ever heard of what God has done for you in Jesus? And they could honestly say, I have no idea what you're talking about. So as much as our heart breaks both for people outside globally and inside locally in our sphere, the reality is is that we know we can do something about both of them. How we're engaged in global mission, but also how we're engaged relationally in our local mission, our relational world, these are things that we can do. As we're a people praying for the people on our card, as we're a people investing in those relationships, wanting to show the genuineness of Jesus's love. And then the great news, like you heard mentioned earlier today, this wonderful opportunity to invite them to something like Christianity Explored. I'm so excited that we're gonna offer this next month because really what it does is it creates, number one, an, an invitation opportunity for you. You've been interacting with this person maybe for years. And as you have, you just kind of realize as you have gotten to know them, they're really at the place. This is an obvious next step. They would like to know more. They would like to have a conversation, maybe in a bigger environment. Maybe you've already had conversations personally, but now the idea of being in a bigger environment where there's a cue that you can follow and they can follow, that just seems like something really interesting. This is a great step for us, and I would just say, take this to heart. Think about the people that you can bring with you and how God could use that. 
Let's move on. Number two in your notes. You have a role of persuasion and instruction in the lives of those who are unconvinced. You have a role of persuasion and instruction in the lives of those who are unconvinced. Look at the last two verses of chapter one. Verse 28, he is the one, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. We've noted before, we said that Paul is being very personal, a lot of I statements in this passage, but did you note at the very beginning, we, he is the one we proclaim. And here's what I want you to hear that I think is really powerful about those switching. There's still the first person, right? I and we. But I want you to see this. Paul did not understand himself to be the fountainhead of all truth. He did not see that I have to be the one who does everything in order for this gospel to expand. I mean, think of who he's writing to. He's writing to a group of people who don't even know who he is, but only know of him through Epaphras. So already Paul has demonstrated, not only am I excited to bring this great news of Jesus all over the world, but as I equip and as I train and as I prepare people in their own faith, that they would go and do the same. Specifically, who's the we he was talking about? It could have been Timothy. We saw that at the very beginning, Timothy is there with him in prison. It could have been Epaphras, referring to that kind of mutual um, camaraderie in the gospel and sharing that, who they knew and, and who was his, as it were, mentor. But either way, I want you to see the value of that. We're all called. We all have this opportunity to be involved. And look at what the task was to be that of admonishing and teaching everyone. It wasn't limited just to Paul, but it's to others as well. I think about those words. I'll explain them in a second, admonishing and teaching, but I want to pull back and say this first. As you think about this idea, sometimes what we do, and we've just spent some time in the early part of August, second part of August, talking about small groups, but the first time part talking about serving and understanding what our gifts are. And one of the things we discuss is that the way that God has supernaturally gifted some people is that they are just really comfortable and they're, they're gifted to have conversations with evangelism, just to be able to share their faith in a very casual, easy manner. And other people are gifted to teach. And they can communicate truth in just ways that make sense to people. And, and those of us who don't have those gifts, we look at that and go, man, they just make it look so easy. Or man, I know I could be so effective in my relational world if I had gifts like that. And here's, here's what I want to double back on and make sure you hear today. One of the things that we tend to think, we live in a culture of experts. You know, you think about the people in your relational world and it's like, I don't think I could ever explain anything well to this person about Jesus, but I know someone who can And we quickly want to connect that other dot. And there's nothing wrong with that, but here's what we're forgetting that person that you've been doing life with, that person that's built trust with you, that person that knows you genuinely care with them of the love of God, doesn't know this other person you want to introduce them to, doesn't know anything about them. And we live in a world not just of experts, but a world of people who want to sell people stuff. And so people naturally have defenses, but they've been walking with you. They've been doing life with you. So look in your notes. The relational collateral in the life of an unconvinced person in your world is useful in far greater ways than the most gifted evangelist or preacher that you could refer them to. You have been gaining a sense of trust, and rightly so, because you love them. There's no manipulation. I want to say this really clearly today. The reason we are so interested in being a rooted and a reaching people is because we are concerned about people's life here and forever. 
We are convinced that Jesus came to be the savior of the world and apart from him, John chapter three, people stand condemned. That's our motivation. We have, there's no hint of any concern other than we genuinely care for people now and forever. So we're moved, we're motivated, the gospel moves us. So you have this opportunity because of the way that you have demonstrated consistently, not perfectly. Nobody in this room has a perfect testimony, a perfect witness, a perfect sense of influence with anyone in the world. But in our broken way, we keep showing them Jesus and keep giving them reasons to ask great questions. Let's talk about what this proclaiming looks like. Paul broke it down into two words, admonishing and teaching, in your notes. Admonishing has to do with urging others to choose God's best by supplying doctrinal or spiritual substance. I love this word. Admonishing has to do with urging others to choose God's best by supplying doctrinal or spiritual substance. Here's what the word admonishing doesn't mean. You're hearing about issues that they're facing and saying, well, here's what I would do. Here's what it doesn't mean. You're hearing about issues that they're facing. Well, my opinion or perspective is. No, that's just you sharing opinions. Ad admonition, admonishing according to the New Testament is saying, hey, when, when I hear what you're going through and what's, what you're facing and challenges and decisions you're trying to make, here's what the Bible says. And, and, I, and I tell people all the time, where this admonishing really happens is one-on-one. -on -one. This happens over coffee. This happens when you have a pause at work and, and, a, and a break where you can have a conversation. This happens one-on-one -on -one and in that relationship. It's you being able to say, hey, you know what? I do have an opinion on what you're facing, what you're, what you're dealing with, but I want to tell you infinitely more important than what I think about what you should do is what God thinks. Could I share that with you? That, that's what I keep driving people back, and I, and I hold up my Bible, and, I, and I'll tell them as we're in my office having a conversation I say, praise God that we have written revelation that would actually give you a map to know what to do. You don't have to be lost. You don't have to be out on the ocean just kind of floundering around wondering what to do. The Bible has something to say about what you're working through. That's what admonition is, and it's showing them this is indeed God's best because he loves you and has your best in mind. Listen to what he says on this subject. The other word is teaching, and it's actually very simple. It has to do with simply causing others to learn or imparting knowledge. Here's, here's the truth of who God is. I just want you to know it. You, don't, you get to choose to believe it or not. You get to choose what you do with it, but I want to make sure that you hear it. And what was the goal of this collective we? What are we trying to do as we're proclaiming, admonishing, teaching? It's to bring everyone with, and to lead them with all wisdom. What was it? So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's what Paul's motivated by. That's the we. So that we may, be, may present everyone fully mature in Christ. I got to tell you, that's a tough phrase. Who do you know that's fully mature? And, and you're right now looking at your spouse and they're going, mm, not you. <laughs> nope, not even close. No, not, not even close. Not even close. And, and here, here's what I think what Paul's after. Contec There's a lot of interpretations. I went through a lot of study this week on that phrase. And literally, you could put uh, a room full of commentators. They're all going to have a different view. This is really challenging. You know, what is he talking about fully mature in Christ? How do you present someone else? fully mature in Christ. I mean, it's not even about a, an issue related to how you are surrendering areas of your life and growing in maturity. How do you mature other people? 
But I was thinking about this as I was walking it through. I was thinking about the general context. Remember, everything about Colossians is written in the context of a letter. What are the issues? And we'll get to these. Paul, we'll talk about in a minute. Paul is just kind of teasing out some ideas before he just kind of goes right to the issue. But if we, as we read Colossians, as we see in future weeks, we're going to find out what the issues are. So consistent with what we said a couple weeks ago, what's the occasion of the letter? People are moving away from singular devotion to Jesus. That's what he's writing about. People are moving away from a reliance upon Jesus to include other things. So of all the commentaries and writers that I was reading this week, I thought Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, he put it well related to the context of the book of Colossians. This is what he said, 128 from the paraphrase. We preach Christ, warning people not to add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. Now watch this. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. I find that, as even used the word, profoundly common sense. That's what it means to be fully mature in Christ. This is my reliance, my standing, my foundation is only on Jesus. Because I know I know that he is who the Bible says he is. I know that he is my savior, my redeemer, my Lord. So therefore I stand with assurance and anything else is shifting sand. In that, Paul moves on and he talks about how he is working. This, the phrase that we have is strenuously contends. It's literally the word agonize. He laboriously agonizes towards this end, but not with his own strength. I want you to see this. Not with his own strength, but with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want to say this. If you're here today and you would say, Todd, I want to get on board with, with our mission. And, and our mission is not like unique to Trinity Church. We just believe it's great commandment, great commission to live lives rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. We believe every Christian is called to that. And you're saying to me, Todd, I want to get on board with living out the mission of why Jesus has me on the planet, but I just got to tell you, when I think about engaging relationally, investing, being a person of intentional influence, I'm just going to start with the fact that I'm exhausted. I don't have much to give. My everyday life of my current commitments of my job, my family, my kids, my spouse, that the basic things that I know I ought to begin with, I have very little left to give away. So when you talk about being a person of intentional Jesus influence, I've got very little left in the tank to even give away at all. And just the thought of it is actually overwhelming to you. Let me pull back. I get what you're saying. Like, I don't think at all that's just crazy talk. But watch this. Listen to what Paul's saying. I'm in prison. I'm agonizing over a group of people who love Jesus. I've never even met them. What we have in common is the bond of Christ. But I'm agonizing over them, but I don't do it in a way that leaves me absolutely depleted emotionally or spiritually. I do these things out of the strength that God gives me. I thought it was impressive. I was talking with my daughter, Aliyah. I told you a couple weeks ago, she's up at school, up in the Sacramento area, and her major in college is called Christian Leadership. And she was very fortunate to get a class in her major first semester. That's sometimes hard to do. 
So she's in this class. She's telling me about it. She loves it. She just feels like this is exactly what I should be doing. And she said, Dad, I, I heard I, I've, our professor's been talking us through some interesting things. The class is called self-leadership, which makes a ton of sense, right? You can't lead others if you can't lead yourself. And as she was telling me about it, she said, Dad, it seems like the, the, the culture of leadership, right? There's so much written about the topic of leadership today in, in every format. Christian, non-Christian doesn't matter. She said, it seems like the, the things I'm learning is that what, what gurus in the world of leadership want people to do is to continue to stack on their plate more and more and more right up to the edge of burnout. Keep the pedal on the floor, just don't cross over. And she said, Dad, that just seems so unwise to me. And I love that her professor is kind of giving her that big picture so from the beginning they can go, I, that's not the frame I want to see life through. That's not the way that Paul agonized strenuously was with his own strength. He didn't fill his plate to the point of burnout and just hope he doesn't cross the line. He's saying, Jesus, you're the one who commissioned me. Everything I need, including the energy and strength to do it, comes from you. And that's who he relied upon. I want to keep coming back again to the dual aspects of our mission. We're called, we believe the Bible teaches us, we're called to be a people rooted in Jesus and, and reaching, how reaching, admonishing and teaching the people in our world. I, I love this time last year, my friend Ricky Hemi from Lancaster was out and, and he did this great message just called Beautiful Feet. And this is what we're called to be, Romans 10, 14. How then can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? And how then, and how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's be a people with beautiful feet. Finally today, number three, treasuring Jesus and growing in the knowledge of him will keep you from falling for counterfeits. Treasuring Jesus and growing in the knowledge of him will keep you from falling for counterfeits. Colossians 2.1. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not yet, have not met me personally, my goal is that they, those who I haven't met yet, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that you, no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Remember now, here's Paul again, very personal, right? Very personal in uh, Colossians 1. And he's saying, I'm, I'm concerned about you that I haven't met in Colossians. I'm also concerned about people in Laodicea. Remember when he showed our map week one, Laodicea is about 10 miles away, so very much like a sister city to Colossae. And he goes, and it's not just you two communities. I'm, I'm concerned about everyone I haven't met yet. I want them to know this great news. His goal with those that he hasn't met is that they would be encouraged in heart and united in love. Now, I read that phrase this week, and I thought, that's a very interesting phrase. I don't even know what that means. Encouraged in heart and united in love. But the great news is Paul goes on to tell us what it means. This is what I mean when I say that. He, he says these three phrases. He gives them so what, or what I call purpose statements, that they flesh out what it means to be a people encouraged in heart and united in love. Look at the first one. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. 
so that they may have the riches, the full riches of complete understanding. People who are encouraged in heart and united in love have an understanding of reality that is not flawed or partial. Where does everything have to begin? If I'm going to move forward in my life, if I'm going to be someone who's going to be honoring to God and be able to be an influence on other people's life, I have to have a grip on reality. I cannot live in some fairy tale world. Watch this. I can't live by my truth. I have to live by the truth. So Paul begins by saying, this is important. I'm praying for these things. I want these things for you. Paul knows that the more assurance that you have in whom you have believed, the more richly you feel, the more confident and sure. So as the first of these purpose statements, so that, look at the next one, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What Paul's basically doubling back on is saying, hey, as you've received the gospel, as you have had revealed to you, disclosed to you the mystery of God in Jesus, my prayer is for everyone I have not yet met that they too would have this mystery revealed to them. Now, you'll see an interesting thing. I think when you look at it, there's a really interesting wordplay. This complete understanding was in regards to what was incomplete before they knew of Christ. The mystery that had been made, made known and revealed in Jesus and how he came to us right from the Father. But I want you to see the play on words. Watch this. What was previously concealed or hidden, the mystery has now been revealed in Jesus. So it's been made known, but watch, who is Jesus? In whom are concealed or hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So think of it this way. Here is one who had been concealed. He had not been revealed yet until in this time in the first century, until just recently. Now that we know he lived, how he lived, how he died, how he rose from the dead, and how he ascended, now we know this mystery of the gospel has been revealed. But in Christ is actually hidden or concealed all this wisdom and truth. What Paul's doing, and I want you to see this over the next couple of weeks, I think it this way. When we read the book of the letters of First and Second Corinthians, they are riddled with, hey, you're getting this wrong. Hey, when I was among you, I told you this. And he is very personal with them, very on target. He's, he doesn't mince any words. He goes right for the point every time. He planted the church in Corinth. He doesn't know the people yet in Colossae. So you'll watch, he has two different types of approaches. Corinthians is super, just straightforward. I don't need to try to gain trust with you. I don't need to try to help you understand I care. You know I care. I stayed with you that whole amount of time. You know I deeply love you, and you know that my love for you comes from Jesus. Now, here we go. For Colossians, it's much more like I'm going to tease out this idea. I'm going to tease out this concern, and what we're going to see in the weeks to come, we're just getting hints in the first chapter about what the real issues are. Paul kind of is going to take his time and lay out some words. Like if the, the Colossian believers in the church assembled, is they're hearing this letter from Paul, and they're hearing phrases like secret, hidden, knowledge, it's ringing a bell in them. And we're going to see over the next few weeks, because this is something that they thought they needed. Hidden treasure is the essence of what we're saying here. And it's just like what we've all been drawn to in various times and ways in our lives. But the point is this, when it comes to Jesus, hidden treasure is not found in a secret set of facts. It's not found in a unique set of, of actions or rules. It's found in Jesus alone. So Paul is going to tease this out. Here, here was the way maybe you could have said in another way with the Colossian believers are struggling with. Jesus is great, 
But the true hidden treasure is in this secret knowledge or in these practices. That's the kind of language that was being talked about. And here's the last one. So that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. When you become so familiar with the real thing, you don't fall for counterfeits. That's the essence of what Paul's saying. I am concerned that people with fine-sounding arguments will lead you away. But Paul says instead, people who are encouraged in heart and united in love, they are not distracted, they're not divided by deceptions that would steer them away from a singular reliance upon Jesus. And I'd say as we hear this, part of us is a little bit shocked. We're like, man, this church is only months or a year or two old, and already, already there is teaching and belief systems that are already skewing just the clarity of the gospel. But I hear that in another way, I'm really not surprised. Partly because there's a lot of people who'd love to be influential in people's lives that don't have any truth at all. But also because it's really easy sometimes as we're receiving something to not begin to really think through, now what did I start with? What did I start with? This pure reliance on Jesus, and it begins to morph, it begins to fade, I begin to become forgetful. So Paul's bringing them back, bringing them back to a view that Jesus is not merely supplemental, he's fundamental. Paul warns them to steer clear of anyone who would try to persuade them away from Jesus and only Jesus. Now in the next few weeks, like I said, he's kind of teasing these ideas out. He's going to get really clear in chapter two about what the concerns are. But for now, just trust me that he's beginning to shed some light on where he's going to go later and say, this is what I was talking about. But I want to draw your attention to this. Are there current struggles in the evangelical landscape today of people who are saying Jesus plus? Absolutely. Here's a few, just by way of example. For some, it's Jesus plus a particular preacher or speaker's insider information that is needed to really find, quote, the hidden treasure. For others, it's Jesus plus a potpourri of different religious teachings and leaders to develop one's own spiritual path where the real hidden treasure's at. For others, it's Jesus plus an intensely rigorous discipleship program that's needed to find the hidden treasure. And for still others, it's Jesus plus a particular social agenda or cause that is necessary to have the hidden treasure. And if you would say today, Todd, I don't even know what you're talking about, I could tell you a name and a face for each of those four examples I just gave you. It's so easy for us to simply begin to put Jesus next to things. But as we've sung today, as we've been talking about in this series, Jesus always stands alone. I want you to stick with us over the next couple of weeks and we'll find out more and more how to not be led astray by fine-sounding arguments. Finally, as we wrap it up, Paul writes that they ought to live as though he was present among them because he is. And what I mean by that is this, because they've responded to the gospel, they have Jesus' spirit residing in, in them just like Paul does. Even though he's miles away in that distance, it's as though he's there among them. And he says, be thoughtful of that. And he tells them, I'm excited to be there. I want to come visit you because of these two things to see how disciplined they are and how firm their faith in Christ is. Both of these terms are military terms. The word disciplined means to be arranged in an orderly way. So the way that maybe a group of soldiers would arrange themselves, that there would be a thoughtfulness to what they do. And firm being that of a solid front in a military formation. Both of these ideas have this sense of, hey, what we're doing, we're not just walking through the park. 
There is a sense of order and discipline in what we do. Paul's intensely personal words that we've seen today for this fledgling church as we see them, let's take them seriously as well as we seek to be a people who are rooted in Jesus as we're reaching our worlds. That now what statement again, now that God has made known the mystery of Jesus to you, make it known to those in your world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today with gratitude for a passage that is providing us, even like last week, some clarity and some, some concern, some warning. God, would we be a people who are learning from this book of Colossians that when you say there is no one who compares to you, when you say that your position in our life is to be reserved for you and you alone, would we get that? Would we see how that plays out, what that looks like in our lives? Would we live in a way, God, that brings pleasure and glory to you? You may be here today, and as we're talking about this Jesus, talking about how it's Jesus alone, you would say, you know, I've heard some things about Jesus, but I could never say at this point in my life that I believe in Jesus alone, that he is in this unique place of leadership, this great place of wanting to surrender my life more and more to him. And I would have great news for you today. You can do something about that. Even before you leave this service, you can say, Jesus, I want to respond to the invitation that was laid out through your life. I A, admit that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I B, believe Believe that you are the only savior available and see, I choose. I choose to live a life that trusts, that rests in what you've done for me that I can't earn for myself. And as a result, out of gratitude, I want to live according to your example. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that gives us clarity for not only how we should live, but how we should be a people of influence. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.